uh, man, it's just so crazy. Every time I come here, I feel like I'm coming home. And uh, actually, I, I was thinking about this yesterday. Uh, and this is so crazy because I am too young to be this old. Uh, <laughs> I, it was 30 years ago that uh, my family and I, uh, which consisted of me and Sherry and Justin at that time, Justin was two, he's 31, he finally found the love of his life. Uh, and he's with us. Uh, and so they, up in the back, our, our, our whole family is here. I don't want to take the time to, to do all of that. But I just got to tell you, man, this is, uh, this is home for us. When, uh, when I got here 30 years ago, uh, you know, coming from the big city of Miami and L.A. and Atlanta, I was thinking, man, am I going to be able to be a, a small-town guy? Yeah. <laughs> really, this, uh, where, wherever I get buried, I'm just telling you, y'all, uh, part of my soul is going to be right here. And uh, I am so grateful to God for uh, the invitation. Jeff, thank you so much for allowing me the privilege. And uh, I wouldn't miss this for nothing. I, for nothing. <laughs> so if, if you ask me, I'll come. Um, and uh, yeah, man, Bible conferences are really, really cool. I, I, like Jeff said, I, I, I hope... You've already cleared off the, the space to, to do this. Uh, last year, uh, Jeff was gracious enough to invite me to come. And, uh, you know, it, it had been a little while since I had been here. And uh, so, you know, just feeling a little weird till I got here. Had no idea what God was going to do in my life through the Bible conference last year. I, I, I don't have time to tell you, but I'm telling you. It jacked me up in the best possible way. And uh, a lot of what I'm going to be sharing with you this week is really born out of what God was doing in my heart and uh, last year in this conference. And so, yeah, I hope God will be able to somehow use this in, in your life today and, and this week. But, okay. Enough of that. Let's, let's talk, okay? And I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to ask you this to try to put you on a guilt trip and you know, get us all feeling bad so you know, we can feel good about ourselves. That's weird how that works, isn't it? I, I, I feel so bad, I feel good. Um, but let, let's just say this morning, before you came here, Jesus showed up in your house or apartment, and he looks you eye to eye. And he asks you this, do you think that there's more to your life and to the Christian life than you're experiencing right now? If he would say it this way, do you believe that you are bringing to me the absolute maximum glory from your life? Could you look Jesus in the eye and say, absolutely. You know what's, what's weird? This is a group of people 
that believes that the rapture is very, very close. And by believing that, we also believe that something else is very close. A time when we do look Jesus eye to eye. And we will answer those questions. What did we do with this life that he gave to us? And if I understand it correctly, what that judgment seat is actually going to be is us walking back through our life, but this time we get to see it the way that Jesus was seeing it the whole time. And I believe for every single one of us, when we're there, we're going to look at our life and we're going to see the potential that we had. We're going to see what could have been. We're going to see what would have been if we would have just totally gone for it. And this morning, that's the question I want to pose to you is, whatever happened to just going for it? I mean, everything. I mean, I look back to the first century, and actually, to every century other than most of the 20th and the 21st, and I see that when people came to Christ and were saved, that's what they did, y'all. They went for it. They abandoned self-will. They abandoned self-seeking and self-interest and all of their temporal pleasures and pursuits. And you know what they did in centuries before, y'all? They came to Christ. And coming to Christ meant going all in. And they trusted Christ to do some crazy stuff with their life. Uh, Unlike what is so prevalent in the 21st century, they didn't didn't see coming to Christ as simply adding Jesus onto their life. They didn't see coming to Jesus, meaning that he's called us to rearrange our life. You know, I used to do this, and now I don't do that anymore. Or, you know, I, I used to have these priorities, And now I've added this new priority onto my life. No, in centuries gone by, they saw coming to Christ as that meaning that he was now their life, their whole life. And with everything within them, they totally went for Jesus. I want to ask you this morning, Do you feel Jesus calling you to go all in? Don't you? Man, isn't there something that just jerks down on the inside of your soul that says, I want Christ to have every part of me? And isn't that what Jesus was actually calling us to? To go all in? totally go for it, to totally go for, for him. You know, I, I mean, I, I look at the call Jesus makes to us through the story of three men in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 
to 61. I think that most of us are at least somewhat familiar with this story, but there's, there's three guys in this, this passage, and, and I want you to listen as we come into this. All three of these guys have every intention of being a faithful follower of Christ. I believe that about the people in this room, man. I believe that all of us, we want to be a faithful follower of Christ. And as I read you the story, I want you to notice that Jesus dialogues with each of them about this thing of following him and what that really means and what that looks like in, in real life. And I also want you to notice that these three guys, just like most of the people in this room, acknowledge not only the fact that Jesus is the, the Lord, but every single one of them acknowledge that Jesus is their Lord. And let's pick up in verse 57. And it came to pass... As they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, Suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell which are at, my, at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow. <laughs> That's some heavy stuff, y'all. I mean, are, are, you, are you hearing what Jesus is actually saying in those verses? He, he's saying in, in verse 58, if you could go back there, yeah, I want you to follow me. But he says, but, but do you understand that to do that, it may mean, that you become homeless, like me? And he's saying in verse 60, yeah, I want you to follow me, but, but do you understand that to do that, it, it's probably going to mean that, that somebody else buries your dad. Okay, that's, that's one thing, as long as it's this dude's dad. But when it's your dad. And in verse 61, he's saying, yeah, I want you to follow me, but do you understand that to actually do that, you're probably not even going to have a chance to say goodbye to your family? And in every case, what Jesus is actually facing them with is, do you still want to go for it? If that's what it means to follow? And did you notice their response? Again, every one of them acknowledged at least with their lips Christ's lordship. But, but watch, watch this, this craziness as we look at it again. The, the guy in verse 59 says, sure, man, I'll, I'll follow you. I mean, who wouldn't? But, Lord, suffer or allow, watch this now, me first to go and bury my father. And do you see the oxymoron 
Do you hear the contradiction in that? He says in one breath, Lord, and in the very same breath, me first. Say what? I, I mean, for, for real, I mean, doesn't G, calling on Jesus as Lord mean you first? And, and not only you first, but you only? Isn't that what lordship is? The guy in verse 61 does the same exact thing. Look, look at it again, verse 61. Lord, I will follow thee, but let, here it is again, me first. And I know, I, I, wanna, I read that and I, I want to say, are you kidding me? Until I step back from my own life for a second, because I just got to tell you, man, I, when it comes to my own personal walk, I, I can pray me some very lofty prayers calling on Jesus as Lord. That, you know, everybody's got their little uh, title of choice that they use when they're talking to God. You know, some people are, you know, in God and God and God and Father God and Father and, you know, mine is Lord. You know, I'm the repetitious Lord guy. Lord. And I can say some pretty astounding things as I call him Lord. And I got to tell you, man, and I did love the worship today, man. I worship God in this place. Um, yeah, man. But I, I can, I, man, I can sing me some pretty awesome songs of surrender and have this, that have this beautiful way, just like the songs we sang today of it, acknowledging Christ as Lord. And when I'm witnessing to folks, y'all, I, man, I can wax pretty eloquent about the fact that Jesus is not only the Lord, he is the only Lord. But if you want to really know the real truth, I'm not much different than the three guys in Luke chapter 9 because the thing that's kept me through the years from going in and going all in and totally going for it is this stinking me first mentality. But I, I do think we'd all have to admit that what Jesus is letting us know about what it really means to follow him is pretty extreme. And regardless of what we want to call that me-first mentality, regardless of how we want to rationalize or justify it, Lord and me-first are by their very nature mutually exclusive. A few chapters over in Luke chapter 14, Jesus gives us another glimpse of his call on our lives to go for through the parable of the Great Supper. And Jesus says in Luke 14, verses 16 and 17, that there was a, there was a certain man that was hosting a great supper. And the point in the story, of course, is that the, the certain man is him. And, and, you know, for all of you... Great theologians, and there are a lot of you in this church. I love that. Uh, those that understand the doctrinal application, I get it. You know, the nation of Israel and the Gentiles and all that. But from a strictly practical and devotional standpoint, the man in the story is Christ, and his inv by his invitation 
to the great supper, he's letting us know that the only true satisfaction in life is found of partaking in him. Because only then can our dead spirits be brought to life and only then can that God-shaped vacuum inside of all of us actually be filled. And so the invitation to the supper is an invitation to come to Jesus for salvation and allow him then to fill our lives with all of his fullness and to just totally go for it, to go for him. And so he sends out his servant in verse 17. And of course, the servant is the Holy Spirit. And the servant goes and says, Come, for all things are now ready. And yet what happens in the story here, is everybody sends back word that they really love to come, but there, there, was, there was some extenuating circumstance that was causing a conflict in their schedule. And let's just see if there isn't something that the Spirit of God might want to say to us from why these three men didn't go for it. The first guy in verse 18 couldn't go for it, because he had bought a piece of land, and of course you know what you got to do when you buy a piece of land. you just got to go out there and look at it. I, I, I guess I've never bought a piece of land. But he couldn't go for it, bottom line is, because he was relishing in his riches. And I'm sure that he appreciated the invitation. But the truth is, the supper just wasn't all that inviting because his needs were being satisfied by all of his stuff. He was relishing in his riches. And then Jesus said that there was another guy who, who couldn't go for it in verse 19 because he had just bought five yoke of oxen and needed to prove them. And he couldn't go for it because he was climbing in his career. And listen, in that agricultural world of the the first century, listen, with with five yoke of oxen, do you understand, man? Things were just about to open up for this guy as far as business was concerned. And again, I'm sure that the dude appreciated the invitation, but listen, drop this for for that? Not right now. And, And then Jesus said there was another guy who couldn't go for it because... He had just gotten married, and he couldn't go for it because he was focusing on his family. And I'm sure that the guy was thinking, yeah, you know, that, that, that invitation to the supper and all, that sounds great, but listen, there, there's going to be a better time than now for stuff like that. And, and you know what, what you, you find from a, a passage like this? What you find is that People really haven't changed too much through the years. Because wouldn't you say that those things that these guys articulated are the top three things that keep us from going for it today? Yeah, yeah, we, we, we would totally go for it. But we're too preoccupied with relishing in our riches I mean, listen, you know, life is, it, it, it's too good to think about what God could really do with our life and wants to do with our life. 
We, we find way too much enjoyment in our, in our beautiful house, in our fancy cars, in our clothes, in all of our big boy toys. And yeah, man, we, we would just totally go for it, but we're too preoccupied with climbing in our career. I, I mean, wow, I know the economy isn't great right now, but man, things are really really happening for me at work, and oh, buddy, man, I, I, think the thing, thing, I think I'm right at the brink of being able to come into my own, and so, man, right now, I would go for it, but right now, I, I, man, i got to keep my nose to the grindstone because I can't miss this opportunity. And we would just totally go for it, but we're too preoccupied with focusing on our family. And this one takes on all kinds of faces. You know, when you're in high school, and I do love the fact that young people sit in the front in this church. Wow! I, you know, when I get out, I don't see that. And it's just so, so cool. But when you're in high school or, or a, a single, you tell yourself, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, after I get married, I'm totally going for Jesus, man. And then once you get married, you tell yourself that you're, you're going to totally go for it after you have kids. Because then we're going to settle down and you know, they need an example and all that. And once you have kids, you don't have time <laughs> to totally go for it. And so you tell yourself that you're going you're gonna to go for it when the kids are grown and they're married. And then when the kids are grown, then it's grandkids. And once that happens, you're dust. <laughs> you totally go for them, man. Listen, y'all. And we end up at the judgment seat of Christ. And we walk back through our lives. And we see what we did go for. And we see what we missed. And, and you know what, what I began to see as I was pondering the, these verses? That what actually keeps most people from totally going for it aren't God's adversaries. They're God's blessings. But listen, owning, a, owning property and houses and cars and clothes... They're God's blessings. Having a, a, a job and an opportunity for advancement and, and having financial security is God's blessing. Having a family and, and great family relationships is one of the greatest blessings that I can think of. It, one of the greatest things that God could ever bestow upon anybody. But the biblical reality is, folks, houses and riches are wonderful blessings. But they're lousy gods. Your, your job, your career, listen, it's a great blessing. It's just a lousy God. And, and, and spouses and children and grandchildren are unbelievable blessings. They're just lousy gods. 
I, I, I don't know, may, maybe we, we all need a major refresher course on the, on the very first of the Ten Commandments. Anybody remember what that is? Uh, something about, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I mean, isn't, listen, y'all, isn't that what this thing of Christianity is really about? Coming into a relationship with the God of the universe through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and him becoming our everything so that no sacrifice for him could be too great or even a thought for that matter. Again, I, I say to you, whatever happened to that brand of Christianity that saw salvation like that? But let me take a, a couple of minutes to, to give you some examples of those who did go for it. First of all, how, how about the disciples in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22? It says this, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. And again, I want you to just look back at the response of Peter and Andrew in, in verse 20. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And look again at the response of James and John in verse 22. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. And the truth is, their response is one thing. If you think that he's calling them away from their hobby or their pastime. A lot of people in Tuscarawas County fish. It's your pastime. It's your hobby. That's not what this was for these guys. Listen, this was their career. This was their livelihood. When they left their nets, do you understand? They were leaving their paycheck. They were leaving their security. They were leaving their home. They were leaving the life that they had created for themselves. And knowing full well what it meant. Again, I want you to notice their response. There's no hesitation. There's no deliberation. No contemplation. No deliberation. No negotiation. Nothing but absolute subordination. And with every fiber of their being, they said, I'm going in. I'm going for it. And again, I ask you, what? Whatever happened to that brand of Christianity? Where is that? And how about my boy Saul? God changed his name to Paul. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Listen, y'all, do you realize that in the middle of the first century, if, if, there was a, 
If there was an up-and-coming young man who was destined for rock star status in the Roman Empire, it, it, was, a, it was a Jew with a familial and a religious pedigree that absolutely could not be rivaled, a, a brainiac that was educated by the greatest minds of his day, a, a guy who from a worldly standpoint had an incredible future in front of him. And one day as he's walking down the road to Damascus, Jesus calls him out. He's, he's, he's on his way because he's so zealous for God and for Judaism. He's on his way to Damascus to go beat the devil out of people that believe the same thing that you and I believe. That's how zealous he was. And listen, as soon as Jesus called him out, you know what he does? He not only drops to his hands and his knees, he immediately drops his entire life. There's absolutely no thought of relishing in his riches or climbing in his career or focusing on his family. There's absolutely no thought of, yeah, but me first. He says, I'm going in. I'm going for it. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? You know what, y'all? He got it. He got it. He understood that Christ's call on his life meant that he was no longer his own because he had been bought with a prize and that from here on out, it would no longer be about him, but it would totally be about Christ. You see, there wasn't a, there wasn't a single part of Paul or Saul at the time that was looking to add Jesus onto his life or you know, or expecting that Jesus was going to you know, dust him off a little bit, pat him on the rear end, get him back in the game so he could pursue what he was pursuing before. He understood that Christ's call on his life was a game changer. That it meant transformation of his dreams and his desires and his goals, and his aspirations, and his pursuits. Again, y'all, Paul got it. And you know what he did? He spent the entire rest of his life trying to get people like you and me to get it. He did everything he could in the New Testament to get you and me to understand that with this... This thing of, of life that we all get, would you please listen to this? We all get one shot. We all have one shot to get this thing right. We've got one shot to make a difference. One shot to prepare for eternity. One shot to invest in eternity. One shot to prove the sincerity of our love. And while we spend time in our little world with me first, and we spend our time with Christ's call on our lives with all kinds of hesitation, 
deliberation, and all those other Asian words that are so pastor marked. While, while we do that, y'all, world's still spinning, clock's still ticking, game's still being played, the war's still raging, the battle's still being fought, and every three seconds that we delay, another five souls land in a godless, Christless eternity. And you know, you just, you just got to wonder. You just got to wonder what would happen if every person in this room that names his name responded to the call of the Lord Jesus Christ to go for it. And we no longer saw our life as our own. And so we offered our life in absolute surrender and trusted the Spirit of Christ in us to do some crazy things through us. And what if what he began to do these things through us? What if... That began to challenge other churches and other believers and other parts of the, of, of the world. And, and they began to watch the model like the church in Thessalonica did in the churches in Judea. Following that example. What if God really could raise up a group of people in the last days who get it, man? That God's called us out and he's called us to something more. And at the judgment seat of Christ, we are going to see that. You know what, man? I got to tell you, if there's any place that I know of on the planet where I believe that could happen, it's here, man. I, I say that to you in all sincerity. I, I mean, what if we all got it? The way that Adoniram Judson got it. And if the name Adoniram Judson isn't familiar to you, I would suggest that you read up on him sometime. Adoniram Judson was an American missionary who served in Burma for, for 40 years. And if you want a little insight into how he got it, let me, let me read you an excerpt from the letter he wrote to the, the father of the young lady that he fell in love with. And... I'd like for every parent and grandparent in this room to imagine your son or grandson writing this letter or receiving this letter from the guy who wants to marry your daughter or granddaughter. Adoniram Judson writes to his hopeful, hopeful father-in-law and says, I, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to see her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God? 
Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? I think Adoniram got it, y'all. And I think we'd all do ourselves real proud this morning to ask ourselves, do I really get it? You know what I've noticed through the years, y'all, is that, that for most people who really did go for it, I mean, holding nothing back. You, you read their story, and, and across the board, what seems to have happened is God brings those people to a, to a tipping point. Something brings them right up to the edge. It, it, it's, it's kind of like God orchestrates things, so he brings them right up to the line of demarcation. For those of you that are not familiar with the term, I'm not a military guy, I just look like one. I get asked that question all the time. But it's a term that's used in the military after war has been declared. And it's that place on the earth, geographical, there's no real line there, but there's a real line there. And it's that place that once you step over that line, man, you're in it. You cross that line, and there's no turning back. You know what? It is kind of crazy. Anybody that you ever have heard about that totally went for it, they can take you back to stepping over a line of demarcation. Jonathan Edwards great preacher and revivalist in our own country during the Great Awakening in the 18th century. L- listen to his tipping point, y'all. L- listen, listen to his testimony of him stepping over the line. On January 12th, 1723, I made a solemn dedication of myself to God and wrote it down. So significant, he knew the day. giving up myself and all that I had to God to be for the future in no respect my own. To act as one that had no right to be himself in any respect. And solemnly vowed to take God for my whole portion and felicity. In other words, what I, what I, what I look to as the source of my satisfaction. Looking on nothing else as any part of my happiness, nor acting as if it were. And his law for the constant rule of my obedience, engaging to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil to the end of my life. Betty Stam, the wife of John Stam, they were American missionaries to to China. And I want you to listen to Betty Stam as she articulates her prayer. When she stepped over the line of demarcation, here it is. Lord, 
I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. And work out thy whole will in my life at any cost. Now and forever. And you know what? In 1934, it cost her her life. She was murdered by communist soldiers. John Wesley can tell you about his line of demarcation. He he words it this way. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you. Or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. Spurgeon came to a point in his life and he said, I have now concentrated all my prayers into one. And that one prayer is this, that I may die to self and live holy to him. Do you know the name C.T. Studd? Got to tell you, man, I wish that was my name. (laughs) M.T. Studd. C.T. Studd was born into a wealthy family in in England, and he became a national sports hero. He was a great cricket player. His father was converted uh, when D.L. Moody came to England. C.T. was saved at the age of 16. He went to Cambridge University, became very famous in in sports. And, and, And listen, he came to a tipping point came to a line of, of, that God had drawn for him in, in the sand. And you know how it came for him? It's a very intriguing thing. He, he, he read a tract that was written by an atheist, an atheist who had obviously been schooled in religion. And here's a portion of what the tract said. If I firmly believed, as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influences destiny in another, then religion would mean to me everything. I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly cares as follies, and earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Religion would be my first waking thought and my last image before sleep sank me into unconsciousness. I should labor in its cause alone. I would take thought for the morrow of eternity. I would esteem one soul gained for heaven worth a life of suffering. Earthly consequences would never stay my hand or seal my lips. Earth 
its joys and its griefs would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and on the immortal souls around me, soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. I would go forth to the world and preach to it in season and out of season. And my text would be, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And C.T. Studd said that after he read that, he said, I at once saw that this was the truly consistent Christian life. When I looked back upon my own life, I saw how inconsistent it had been. I therefore determined from that time forth, my life should be consistent. And I set myself to know what was God's will for me. It's whack when lost people get it. And we don't. I think most of you are familiar with the quote by D.L. Moody, the world is yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. J. Wilbur Chapman, he was an American evangelist in the early 1900s. He went to London and he heard William General Booth speak. And uh, after hearing him speak, he was just taken with the things that he, that he heard and how God had used the, this, this man and he walked up to William Booth and he asked him, how, how did all of this happen? How does, how does one man accomplish so much for the kingdom of God? And this is what Wilbur Chapman said. He hesitated for a second. And I saw the tears come into his eyes and steal down his cheeks And then he said, I'll tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I. Men with greater opportunities. But from the day I got the poor of the world on my heart and a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with the poor, I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there's anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it is because God has had, listen to this now, God has had all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. I I ask you this morning, Does God have all of you? Remember where we started? Jesus looking at you and and saying, is there more to this Christian life thing than what you're living? Do you believe today? 
that you are bringing to the Lord Jesus Christ through your life the absolute maximum glory? You know what, what I'm praying this week? I'm, I'm praying that this might be for a whole bunch of us our tipping point. This, this conference this week might be that line of demarcation for us where we step over the line. And for the rest of our life, we're all in. Regardless of what it means. You know what? I'm not, I'm not saying we all have to go in the ministry. No. That would be crazy. Don't do that. Most of us probably couldn't bring you the maximum glory if we did that. But I got to tell you, y'all, we're fastly approaching the judgment seat of Christ (laughs) where we're going to see it really clearly. And it's too late to do anything about it. This is it. If you haven't already cleared off this week, man... Why don't you just offer it to God? Okay, God, yeah, I was going to clean out the garage this Monday and this. Why don't we just let him clean out our garage this week? (laughs) And bring us to the point. Absolute surrender. Line of demarcation. Would you bow your head? I'm going to ask Pastor Jeff if, if he'll come.